Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show rigorously devoted to telling you things about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you already know. I am once again rocking my Italia gear today because Italy's glorious summer of 2021 continued yesterday. Uh, after their hard-fought, and that is putting it mildly, victory in the European Soccer Championships last month, yesterday in Tokyo, two Italian athletes claimed the gold medal in events in which the Italians have never even had somebody in the finals before. They are the centerpiece event of men's track and field, the high jump, and the 100-meter sprint. Today, we will be talking about that. But in addition, we have a gold medal menu for you today on Last Week in the Church. So let me tick off the courses I will be serving up. Jacques Hughes! Theodore McCarrick becomes the first man ever to hold the office of Cardinal of the Catholic Church in the United States to be criminally charged with child sexual abuse. Welcome back. The Vatican trial of the century, the corruption trial involving a controversial London land deal, brings some characters from days past out of the woodwork. You've been pillared. A new Catholic news site continues its bombshell exposés about the use of hookup apps by Catholic clergy. The August Surprise. What will be the unforeseen twist in the Pope Francis story yet to come this month, and why it is remarkable that such things happen at all? And finally, Italy's summer of gold, and will it include a boom for the Catholic Church? That's what's waiting for you on last week in the church on the other side of this. All right, we begin this week with the stunning news out of the United States about ex-cardinal and ex-priest Theodore McCarrick. You will remember, of course, that beginning in 2018, Theodore McCarrick became basically the poster boy for the child sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic Church. Uh, it emerged that uh, rumors and concerns about McCarrick's potential hinky behavior began to circulate in the American church as early as the early 1990s. Despite all of that, McCarrick was first promoted as the Archbishop of Newark in New Jersey, and then he was later promoted as the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., made a cardinal, sort of carved out a space for himself at the pinnacle of power in the Catholic church, Despite the fact for that entire two-decade period, there were persistent, well, whispers, I guess you would say, about what McCarrick was up to in his private life, uh, whispers that reached the Vatican that resulted in a kind of, you know, super-secret double suspension, if you know the movie Animal House, uh, that was imposed on McCarrick during the papacy of now Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, but never really enforced. Uh, he had even a, a renaissance, really, uh, at the beginning of the Francis papacy. Uh, and, and yet, this house of cards came, house of cardinals, I guess you could say, came crashing down when those rumors turned into hard accusations. Uh, they became public 
Uh, McCarrick was first removed from the College of Cardinals by Pope Francis, uh, and then shortly thereafter defrocked, that is, laicized, expelled from the priesthood. Uh, so he is now no more than a private citizen. Most of those charges uh, involved accusations of sexual misconduct and abuse that dated so long into the past, they couldn't be prosecuted criminally uh, because the statute of limitations had expired. However, uh, there is one such charge that has now emerged from the state of Massachusetts. Now, it dates back to 1974, so it's 50 years ago, basically, uh, but Massachusetts had a, has a codicil in its criminal code that if you commit a crime in the state and then you leave the state, the statute of limitations is frozen until you come back. And, and so, in this case, prosecutors in Massachusetts were able to indict McCarrick because of that exception to the statute of limitations. Uh, the charge uh, is that a wedding, at a wedding reception in 1974, McCarrick uh, sexually abused a 16-year-old male, uh, and then there are three different counts for three different things he, he allegedly did. Now, McCarrick has not commented on these specific charges, but in the past, he has claimed that he has no memory of ever sexually abusing anyone. His lawyer has indicated that they will respond in court. A summons has been issued to McCarrick to appear at a September 3rd arraignment in Massachusetts. Indications are McCarrick and his legal team will be there. Uh, now, what is of interest uh, about all of this? Well, first of all, uh, it obviously puts McCarrick back in the spotlight. Uh, and it also, once again, emphasizes, underlines, underscores, puts an exclamation point on the fact uh, that there were legitimate reasons to be concerned about McCarrick, what we might today call red flags, well before he started climbing the clerical ladder. We're talking about the mid-1970s. I mean, you know, a bishop's mitre, uh, you know, wasn't even on the near-term horizon at that point. And yet somehow he managed to bob and weave and conceal and compartmentalize uh, and continue his climb up the ladder. And the question, maybe it's going to be forever, uh, is going to be, how in God's name was that possible? I mean, one or two things are true, and perhaps both. Okay, one is that McCarrick was a master liar. He was a gold medal sociopath. Uh, and he was just an expert at concealing his, his private life from absolutely everyone. Uh, you know, the other possibility uh, is that even though there were warning signs, people in power looked the other way because McCarrick, he was a gifted churchman. He, he knew languages. Uh, he was an exceptionally gracious and charismatic personality. He was very gifted at raising money. He was gifted at ingratiating himself uh, with people in power. Uh, he had a track record of success. Uh, on kind of diplomatic troubleshooting missions in various parts of the world. Uh, and basically, the system was willing to turn a blind eye to rumors and whispers because they liked the guy they saw right in front of them. I don't think it's an either-or. I, I think the, the true final story is probably going to be some combination uh, of both of those things. 
But in any event, this is going to kickstart that self-examination once again. All right. Uh, we move to our second story this week, which is Welcome Back. In this case, not Welcome Back Cotter, uh, but Welcome Back Chalqui. <laughs> uh, so uh, the Vatican's trial of the century, uh, we talked about it last week, had its first hearing on July 27. Uh, it's a case in which, for the very first time, a cardinal is being charged and tried uh, for crimes under the laws of the Vatican city-state, uh, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the, the Pope's former chief of staff, for his role in a controversial $400 million real estate deal in London, where the Vatican's Secretary of State was using money from Peter's Pence, collected from rank-and-file Catholics around the world to support papal charities, and instead they were using it to finance this deal to buy a former Herod's warehouse in the posh London neighborhood of Chelsea that was supposed to be turned into luxury apartments. Uh, now, that trial uh, has been adjourned until October 3rd, uh, after that hearing on July 27th, where there were real concerns, frankly, about just the logistical capacity of the Vatican prosecutor's office and the court to keep up with such a major proceeding. It turns out that a lot of the documents that they had provided to the defense were either illegible or they couldn't be opened, uh, and, and all that has to be sorted out. So the trial itself is on hold. In the meantime, there's a parallel trial going on in the media. And one of the interesting, noteworthy developments of late uh, is that a character that we haven't heard from for a while but who was the star of the show during the Vatty Leaks 2 trial, uh, an Italian lay woman by the name of Francesca Immacolata Cialqui, has emerged back in the public spotlight because she has been giving interviews, hither and yon, uh, in which she has been talking about how she's been rehabilitated by Pope Francis and how grateful she is for that, uh, and also how much Bechu was an obstacle to progress and a bad guy back during the time that she was part of the, the Pope's Vatican reform effort. Uh, uh, Bechu has objected to all of this. Through his lawyers, he has called these interviews by Chalqui completely and patently false uh, and has announced that he will be filing a lawsuit against Chalqui for defamation. Uh, Italian law doesn't have a cause of action for libel, so when you want to sue somebody like a reporter or, in this case, just a private citizen posting something on a blog, you sue for defamation. Uh, now, Chalqui is somebody who brings a lot of baggage uh, into this conversation, but I think what it all illustrates uh, is how the Bechu trial uh, makes everything uh, for the last, like, tw I don't know, 15 years on the Vatican scene kind of topsy-turvy. Because anybody who was Bechu's enemy for a long time got squelched and was styled as the villain uh, of the story, with Bechu kind of the crusading papal loyalist. However, beginning around 2018, when Pope Francis lost confidence in Bechu, and certainly culminating now with the fact that he's been indicted and is being tried, that's been turned on its head. So anybody who was at odds with Bechu all of a sudden 
you know, can make a case for being actually the good guy of this story. By the logic, if I was on the opposite side of the bad guy, then I, I must be on the side of the angel. And that is sort of how Chalqui is attempting to rebrand herself. I, I, I doubt that she's going to be the last to play this card. All right, third on the rundown this week. You've been pillared. Uh, a new Catholic news site uh, in the United States called Pillar uh, made a name for itself recently by publishing uh, data, uh, geolocation data from the cell phone of the Secretary General of the U.S. Bishops Conference, showing that he used the Grinder app and also that he frequented gay bars and bathhouses, private residences of males, and so on. The, the individual in question, Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell, still has not commented on these charges, uh, but the Bishops' Conference put out a statement saying he was resigning because he didn't want to be a distraction. Uh, and that triggered a big debate, one uh, about why Cleric would be, you know, hanging out at gay bars uh, and how he could have become uh, the chief of staff for the bishops while doing that sort of thing. Uh, the other was about the ethics of paying for this kind of confidential data and then broadcasting it to the world without the subject's consent. Uh, now, uh, that seemed like it was enough of a kind of salacious story. In the meantime, uh, Pillar has kept at it. Uh, immediately after the Burial scoop, they published uh, another scoop suggesting uh, that they had found evidence uh, of the use of hookup apps, both gay and straight, uh, at at least 10 clerical residences in the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey. That was followed by another piece uh, in which they said they had evidence uh, of use of hookup apps at at least 10 different venues that they had geolocated within the Vatican City state, within the Vatican itself. They also claimed that they had had, well, and didn't claim, reported that they had had a meeting with uh, the Cardinal Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, where they relayed this information. Now, uh, so where do things stand? Uh, I think three points here are noteworthy. One, while the data provided by Pillar uh, is certainly suggestive, that is, if they can prove unnamed clerics were using hookup apps, either in Newark or in Rome, uh, then, you know, it, it is obviously of concern. However, that in and of itself does not establish any kind of misconduct. Uh, that is to say, it is not proof that any particular cleric was actually engaged in behavior that would directly contravene Catholic faith or morals. Uh, it simply puts him in a worrying and arguably inappropriate location, or using a worrying and potentially in a, inappropriate app. Uh, but we don't know what they were doing with those apps. We don't know what any of these people actually did. Uh, and so until that is established, the jury is probably out. Second, uh, it is still unclear who is providing this information to Pillar. Pillar has not disclosed that. They have simply said that they obtained this information legally. Uh, however, uh, because we don't know who the source is, uh, we don't know what the agenda is. Uh, and some obviously suspect that somebody here does have an agenda, 
Maybe uh, it is a conservative agenda to get gays out of the priesthood or just to weaken perceived liberal cardinals in the case of Newark or perceived liberal popes, I suppose, uh, in the case of the Vatican. Uh, maybe it's pecuniary gain. We just, we don't know. Uh, and so until that piece of information uh, comes in, it is difficult to assess uh, or to, to offer uh, sort of the last word on this story. Uh, and then finally, uh, it is just noteworthy that this is one case uh, in which the Catholic press is actually on the cutting edge. To date, no other news organization has actually done this, that is, obtained private user data from a third party uh, and then broadcast it to the world. Uh, now, whether you think that is an act of courage and holding power accountable, or uh, whether you think it is a worrying lapse in journalistic ethics and sort of the new frontier in sleaze, uh, that, I suppose, is in the eye of the beholder. But it is unquestionably the case that, for once, uh, it, it is the Catholic media that is driving a debate uh, about what is technically possible and what is morally acceptable. All right. The, uh, the August surprise. August in Italy uh, is typically a dead month. It is characterized by what Italians call the Ferragosto holiday. That term actually dates from Imperial Rome. It's the Ferie, di August, or, uh, Ferie Auguste, meaning the holidays of Caesar Augustus because they were decreed by Augustus. Uh, and to this day, uh, Italians take August 15th off, which back in the day celebrated the Emperor Augustus. It is now the Catholic feast of the Assumption, but in any event, it's still a day off. But most Italians take that, in, well, many Italians take that entire week. Frankly, many of them take the entire month. Italians believe they have a kind of natural law right to take their vacations in August. I mean, put it this way. Americans stagger their vacations throughout the year, right? Some of us go in August, but some of us go in December, some of us go in May. Uh, and the idea is we ensure continuity of service throughout the year, right? Not so here in Italy. 57 million Italians all cram their annual vacations into the month of August. So things shut down, including the Vatican. Except there is one guy living in Italy who stubbornly refuses to buy in to the Ferragosto idea, uh, and that is Pope Francis. Let me give you a brief TikTok. In 2013, in August, Pope Francis appoints Pietro Perolin as his Secretary of State. In 2014, he travels to South Korea. In 2015, he sets the dominoes in motion to his two contentious synods on the family that ended in a Morris Letizia and a ruling in favor of communion for the civilly divorced and remarried. Uh, in 2016, Francis issues new rules for the Vatican Bank. In 2017, Pope Francis's closest allies take a hard shot across the bow at Catholic conservatives in the United States with their infamous Humanism of Hate essay. In 2018, Francis goes to Ireland for the world meeting of families and is greeted by the bombshell accusations from a former papal nuncio that he covered up the charges against McCarrick. Uh, in 2019, Francis is wading into the political waters of Belarus, Lebanon, places all over the map, 
And last year at this time, he was leading the world through the coronavirus pandemic. Does that paint a picture of a pope on vacation in August? No. <laughs> Clearly it does. Every August, Pope Francis delivers some major surprise. That implies two things. One, the countdown to his August surprise this year has begun. Uh, and two, uh, that it, of all the ways in which Pope Francis is countercultural, measured by Italian standards, his stubborn refusal to capitulate to the vacation ethos in August, given the fact especially, by the way, that his family comes from the Italian Piedmont, it may be his most countercultural position of all. And finally this week, Italy's summer of gold. Uh, you will remember, we talked last month uh, about Italy's heroic, inspiring, remarkable uh, victory in this summer's European soccer championships. I mean, they faced the best of the best along the way. Uh, in the semifinals, they faced a Spanish team that was arguably the most talented team in this tournament, and it came down to penalty kicks at the end. It was a nail-biter extraordinaire. Uh, and then in the finals, they faced a resilient, motivated English team that was playing for the championship on their home soil in Wembley Stadium in London before 65,000 revved up and voracious English soccer fans. Once again, it came down to penalty kicks. And once again, in Ostro Ragazzi, our boys prevailed. Uh, and, and it triggered a wave of celebration and joy and national pride here that is almost unimaginable. Now, that alone would have been enough to make the summer of 2021 echo in the memories of Italians forever. Uh, but it didn't end there. Because yesterday at the Tokyo Olympics, two Italian athletes won the gold medal in events, kind of centerpiece, flashy events uh, of men's track and field, uh, in which Italy had never even had anybody qualify for the finals before. Uh, so Gianmarco Tambari won the gold medal in the high jump. And it's a really touching story because actually he tied for the gold medal with a friend of his who is a high jumper from Qatar. Uh, and at the end, it was his friend who ceded the gold medal to Tambari. They had originally proposed that they share the gold medal. They were informed by Olympic authorities that's not possible. And so his friend, in an act of sportsmanship that is just remarkable, uh, ceded it to Tambri. Now, that alone would have been enough to make Italians stand up and salute yesterday. But less than 10 minutes later, uh, another Italian athlete and a very close friend of Tambri, Marcel Jacobs, won the 100-meter men's sprint, this iconic event. Now, if Marcel Jacobs doesn't sound like an Italian name to you, you're right. Uh, he was born in El Paso, Texas uh, in 1994. Uh, his, offer, his father was an American army guy. Uh, his mother was an Italian. Just days uh, after Jacobs was born, 
uh, his father got reassigned. His mother decided not to follow him and returned with her newborn infant to Italy, where he grew up. He doesn't even speak English. He no longer has American citizenship. Uh, but uh, in any event, he won this 100-meter sprint. Uh, and that triggered another wave uh, of euphoria and national pride. I mean, you can't imagine. Italy, I live here, folks. This is my adopted country. I, I am, you know, I'm, I'm American in every possible way. Every Italian here can spot me as an American from a mile away. But I nevertheless, this country has given me my greatest memories. It's given me a home. Uh, it's welcomed me with open arms. It's given me friends I could never imagine. So I, I love it like I love America. Uh, and this country has suffered. I mean, it's in so many ways. In 2018, the Italian national team didn't even qualify for the World Cup. This was a historic failure. And in Italy, soccer is the civil religion. This hurt. And it was a pain that just was hanging around. You know, uh, then we lived through months of political chaos uh, and deep divisions, the kind of political ideological divisions Italy has never really seen since the Second World War. Then the coronavirus hit. Italy, of course, in, in anywhere outside China, Italy was hit first and in many ways was hit the hardest. We've lived through months of economic hardship. I mean, I got friends, people I know who work in Italian restaurants, for instance, who have been laid off, who are basically now the working poor. I've got, I've got friends who worked in hotels, and it's the same thing. They can't feed their families. Their dignity has been assaulted. It, it, it just, it has been hard. And so to come into this summer, when the Italian national team not only like, qualified for the European championship, but blazed a path through it with a team, by the way, there were no superstars. There were no prima donnas on that team. These were all vintage Italian guys that everyone in this country could recognize and identify with. To see them blaze that path through the championship to gold, and then yesterday, to watch these, these two guys who bleed Italian blue, to, to watch them win in events where Italy hasn't even been in the conversation before. I mean, the, the boom to, to like national pride uh, is just unimaginable. The sense of new possibility, the, the sense of rebirth, and one interesting question to ask about all of this uh, is that now that it is fashionable to be Italian again, uh, and as Italians are rediscovering their roots, is part of that picture going to be rediscovering their Catholic identity? The church here, too, has been on a back leg for quite some time. They struggled uh, to get people to come back to church uh, after the lockdown of the coronavirus pandemic. Still today, uh, mass attendance in Italy, uh, now that it's possible again, is about half of what it used to be. Giving to the church is down. Now, that isn't of direct concern because they still have the, the church tax here in Italy, but nevertheless, it's an index. Uh, participation in Catholic events is down and on and on. The question is, uh, as Italians once again embrace what's in their DNA because they are so damn proud of it, right now. <laughs> Will that include uh, a new embrace of their Catholicity? Uh, and will there be a Catholic boon 
to accompany the Italian boon remains to be seen and probably in part depends on the pastoral imagination of the Catholic Church here in the country. We will see. All right, that's our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. Okay, two reminders for you. One, uh, if you enjoyed last week in the church, if you like being reminded of things you've already heard of in great depth and exhausting magnitude, uh, please uh, go onto the social media platform of your choice. Give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet. Go forth and make disciples of all the nations. I also want to remind you that full coverage of all the stories we've talked about can be found on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. And do keep your eyeballs on Crux, because very soon we are going to be debuting a new look on the site. Uh, the architects, the engineers, uh, and the geniuses behind it uh, are our friends and partners at Longbeard, a digital media and design company. They are the very best in the business. They're also, by the way, the driving force behind this show. So kudos, shout out, and much love to our friends at Longbeard. That's our show for this week. Please be with us next Monday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. We will talk to you again soon.